Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. Good early evening. It is Friday, October the 21st, 2022. It is currently 5.10 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where once again, we're going to talk about a proper distinction between law and gospel, and we're going to talk about a lot of other very important issues. If you missed the last live broadcast that aired a couple of hours ago, we turned our attention to the, well, the doctrine of sanctification, and let's just say things got very frustrating and irritating for me. Others others found the discussion extremely interesting. I found it maddening. I found it irritating. And I'm going, I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of times when I hear Christians discuss lots of issues, but especially when it comes to sanctification, I start thinking that possibly Christianity leads to some kind of mental block, some kind of, it, it almost takes away any ability to think rationally and logically about anything. It, it's just bizarre that Christians can say something that clearly isn't true. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, you can just demonstrate it that it's absolutely not true, yet Christians will say it. They will preach it. Everyone listening, in the, everyone sitting in the pew has to know it's not true. But they say amen, and they affirm it as if it's true. And I don't understand how Christians can do this. This has been what ma- drives me crazy about the charismatic movement. The pastor will stand there. Healing is guaranteed in the atonement for right here, right now. You believe you will be healed. It doesn't matter what it is. Well, then you look around. People get sick. People die. People get sick. People die. People get sick. People die. Does everyone who gets sick and die, does everyone who's not healed of a or disease or of some horrible disability, is it because they don't have enough faith? Like, like at some point, you have to start questioning your theology because all of the reality around you. And nope. Charismatics will argue and argue and argue and argue and argue, no matter how much evidence is presented to them contrary to their doctrine. And when it comes to non-charismatics, we there's many issues that we talk about that you're like, that just can't be accurate. So, and what we are doing is we're reviewing a sermon on law and gospel. This is a part of our ongoing series. This is part what, 11, part 12 and our ongoing series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Please go back and listen to everything. We've laid out 25 theses about the proper distinction between law and gospel. We've done a lot of, we did a little bit of history uh, according to Baptist confessions and how they dealt with it and then how it was kind of just dropped. We, we started reading a little bit of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. We, we really have started digging in, but we've taken these kind of breaks here or there to review other teaching on law and gospel to supplement what we're doing. And so in the last one, the, the sermon that we're currently reviewing, we, we stopped midway through it, and we're going to finish it right now. They brought up the subject of sanctification, but they made a couple of claims, right? The first claim is, <laughs> this is very important, if you are saved, you have been given the ability, the supernatural ability to say no to sin and yes to the righteousness of God. Yes to living a righteous life. You've been given the supernatural ability. Now, I don't know how anyone in any church could sit there and say amen because you would be like, wait a minute. 
You people are crazy. If we've been given the supernatural ability to say no to sin, then all Christians should be able to be sinless because we can't, you can't say that we've been given the ability to say no to sin and then still turn around and claim, however, you can't be perfect and however, you're going to continue to sin. Why? You've been given the ability to say no to sin. So why do you say, well, sometimes you don't want to say no to sin. So I, I have the ability to be perfect. Just no Christian on the face of the earth wants to be perfect. What? And if I've given the ability to say no to sin, that would have to mean that the old nature has been eradicated. It would have to mean that. So, but Christians say this all the time. We've, we've reviewed, I don't know how many different podcasts from, you know, episodes from other podcasters where they make this claim. You've been given the power to say no. You can say no to sin. You can say no to sin. And yet Christians sin, 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 sin. Why did the apostle Paul just start his letter to the Corinthians? Hey guys, just say no to sin and say yes to God. It's that simple. <laughs> it, it didn't, it's never worked that way. It never has. But that was one of the claims. There's a million issues with that. We talked about it in the last episode. Please go review it. And then he started talking about really kind of three types of sanctification, three kind of stages of sanctification. The first one I think he called a distinct uh, sanctification. It's, it's the one, it's the initial sanctification. It's the one that happens at the minute of salvation where we are set apart fully from God. We will call this, because I'm going to use some different titles, I'm, I want you to think of sanctification in three three ways positional, experiential, and and permanent. Positional, experiential, and permanent. Now, positional is what happens at the moment of salvation. At the moment of salvation, you are set apart unto God. You've been bought with a price. You're no longer your own. You've been set completely apart for God, for God's glory, God's purpose, God's honor, and you are, you are his. That, that, that is done. That's a monergistic sanctification. You have no part in that, just like you have no part in your justification. You have no part in this sanctification. You are set apart by God, right? That's your positional sanctification that is complete, It's there. Positionally, you're perfect. Positionally, you're perfectly sanctified. Because guess what? In your position, you're declared perfect and righteous and holy because of an imputed righteousness, right? There's your positional. Experiential sanctification is what happens during your lifetime. Now, the claim in the audio that we're reviewing is that the experiential sanctification is also monergistic. Monergistic meaning the work of God alone. You have no part in your experiential sanctification. God does it all. Now, if God does it all, that raises serious questions, right? Because if you don't have a certain level of sanctification in your life, you keep sinning here, keep sinning here, keep sinning here. Well, that would have to be God's fault since you have no part in your sanctification. God is the one who sanctifies you. And if God is the one doing all the sanctification, why wouldn't he just bring Christians to, I don't know, sinless perfection? Why would he want them still sinning? Why would he want them still falling? Why would he want them still struggling? Why would he still want them embarrassing and hurting the name of, well, of himself? So on one hand, We are being told that God gives us the complete ability to say no to sin and yes to God. God is the one completely doing the sanctification. However, for some weird reason, we sin, 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 sin. All right, but they believe the, according to the audio, they believe the experiential kind is also monergistic. Remember, 
Monergism, the work of one. Synergism, the work of two. Monergistic sanctification, God does it alone. Now, I believe the positional one is monergistic. The experiential one, well, I'm having a hard time saying that's monergistic. We have, I think we have some part to play in that. You can tell me. And then the final one is permanent sanctification, and that's basically glorification. And obviously, that's completely the work of God where we, we end up with a new body. There's no, more, there's no more sinful nature. It's all gone. And now, yeah, that, that, that is obviously clearly monergistic. That's all the work of God as well. So that's where we are. We're talking about sanctification. It's been utterly confusing, utterly confusing, where um, <laughs> I just, I don't even know what to say. I, 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 Christians walking around, nope, I have the power to say no to sin. I just never do. And even if you say you, you have the power to say no to sin, don't you realize even if you say no to sin in some external way, that doesn't in any way, shape, or form mean you've said no to sin because you have a sinful nature. You have a sinful nature. So you can, you can, you can do all the things right externally and still be all kinds of corruption and sin internally. So are you saying we can say no to sin externally and internally? Well, then that would have to mean the eradication of the old nature. So I, it's just amazing. Christians say things and nobody stops to go, uh, can we take that thought to its logical conclusion? I, I don't get it. I don't understand. But. We're going to continue this. What we wanted to hear is more discussion about a proper distinction between law and gospel. And now it's turned into this really, 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 really confusing understanding of sanctification. But here we go. And just remember, someone like me asking these questions shouldn't bother you, shouldn't disturb you. You should go, hmm, we all should have these questions. And we should. Just so many times in the church— no one's allowed to ask any questions. No one bothers to ask any questions because everybody just wants it simple. They want a three-point sermon. Jesus loves you. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And go home and get home by 12 so that you can get lunch. I, it's just like, but these are deep theological issues that we have to wrestle with. And we should want to wrestle with them and find some joy in wrestling with it, even though at times it can be maddening. Here we Back to the audio. We're reviewing an audio from a conference dealing with law and gospel, and they're dealing with sanctification. And well, let's see where we got 25 minutes to go. Let's see where we can, if we can finish this. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. It is God's work. God is the sanctifier. We are being sanctified. We don't sanctify ourselves. Strictly speaking, God alone sanctifies. Leviticus 20, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Please note. So now he's not just saying your positional sanctification, not just your permanent sanctification. He is claiming that all three, all three, that's it. All three are God's work alone. Someone says, okay, so someone that thought I was laughing at my Jesus loves you, this I know for the Bible tells me so. I hope I said that correctly, but yeah, I, that, that's what some people want. That's, that's about as deep as they want to go. But okay, but back to this. His claim here is that all sanctification is monergistic, not synergistic. He's quoting Leviticus because God is the one who sanctifies and, well, that's true positionally. That is true permanently. But I don't know if we can 100% prove that it's true experientially because just think, if God is the one who sanctifies and God is the one saying it in Leviticus, Leviticus is specifically giving laws to whom? 
Israel. So God would be saying, I'm the one who sanctifies Israel. Hmm. I would argue he failed miserably if you're talking about experiential sanctification because they failed and sinned against God throughout the Old Testament, even into the minor prophets. Someone was pointing out in our study in Amos today, a great observation that if you look at everything that they were doing, they weren't loving God. They weren't loving their neighbor. They were breaking the law. They were breaking the law. They, Israel and Amos is being judged for how much they were still breaking God's law. Israel, Judah, they, they constantly did so, constantly. So if God is, the, so if you quote Leviticus and says, God is the one who sanctifies, clearly Leviticus is speaking first and foremost to Israel. And if you're talking, saying that that refers to experiential sanctification, then God did not sanctify them. In some cases, it felt like he spent more time killing them than he did sanctifying them. Oh, I know I'm not supposed to say that, but let me look at how many times they died in the wilderness. How many times? This, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. How many? Captivity, judgment. Look at all the things that happened in Judges. I mean, where's this great sanctified nation who experientially and practice lived such amazing godly lives? They were constantly in rebellion, constantly in sin, constantly turning to rebellion. So if you're going to quote Leviticus 20 as your proof text that God is the one who sanctifies experientially, then the only conclusion anyone would come to, because Leviticus 20 would be directed first and foremost at Israel. Now, positionally, you can make an argument, yes, he sanctifies them. But experientially, did Israel ever live like a truly godly life? Even if it did, it was always temporary. And has Christians lived? We got 2,000 years of church history of every kind of sin in the world, not just outside the church, inside the church. Wilhelm A. Brekel. Has anybody read Christian's Reasonable Service? Uh, Brekel was uh, a great theologian, but he put things in very practical ways. And so the theologians back in those days, dads and moms even, would read scriptures in the morning, and then they would have Brekel for breakfast. And they would read their children Brekel for breakfast because he was easy to understand. But he didn't dumb things down. Brekel wrote, God alone is sanctification's cause. As little as man can contribute to his regeneration, faith, and justification, so little can he contribute to his sanctification. Everywhere in the world of Gospel Coalition and Young Reformer and Restless and everything you read online, they're going to probably say exactly opposite what I'm going to say. They're going to say Gospel sanctification is synergistic, S-Y-N, not S-I-N, that we work and God works. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, they would say. If you take your London Baptist Confession and turn to chapter 13. So, so that means even within some reform circles, there's not agreement on this. Synergistic or monergistic. I'm going, I, this is the point I want you to understand. Whether you go synergistic or whether you go monergistic, here's the issue we have to come to. This is the issue we have to come to. We continue to sin. 
So even if you go synergistic or even if you go monergistic, you cannot say that we somehow have been set free from the power of sin so that now we can say yes to God and we can say no to sin because that would mean that we can, in theory, be perfect and no one has. And as long as you say we're going to continue to sin, then I'm not set free. And clearly I can't say no to sin because you're telling me that I will sin. So whether you go synergistic or monergistic, you end up in a problem. So how do we understand sanctification from an experiential standpoint? Well, what is it supposed to look like? How is it supposed to work? Let's see what it says. It's so nice to go to confessions and creeds and to help us. It's kind of like, you know, some of our friends will say, why do you look at confessions? Um, why do you look at them, right? Don't just, uh, we look at the Bible as they're carrying their famous celebrity study Bible. I just, it's always just fascinating to me that they do that. Remember, God has built his church and he's given gifts to the church and some of them are alive, some of them are dead, right? Some of the ones that are alive, we wish they were dead, but that's, that's another story. Remember the language of Ephesians chapter 4? Okay, that's not really funny. That's, that's not really funny. If you ever wish that certain Christians were dead because you don't like their theology, that's not, that's not really funny. Now, I, I make, I look, I get myself in trouble with my humor all the time, like every day because I'm always joking around and end up making someone mad at me. So I, I'm guilty of it, but I mean... Some of them are dead. Some of them alive today, we wish we were dead. You're talking about people. Now, I wish certain theologies were dead. I wish charismatic theology was dead, wiped off the face of the earth, removed from everyone's memory, and it never existed in the history of Christianity. If you say, if you could go back in time and fix one thing, what would you do? I would stop charismatic theology from ever being created or ever showing up on the face of the planet because it's a plague, it's a cancer, and I literally hate it. But I don't want anyone to die so, but again, pastors, when you get caught up in the moment, we start making jokes. So, but see, but what does that demonstrate? Well, I just want you to hear someone who claims that he has the supernatural, the supernatural ability to say no to sin and yes to God. And someone with the supernatural ability can't seem to stop himself from making a joke about wanting some people to die or to be dead. Sin just flows out of us. We, it just, it just shows up. It shows up in our speech. It shows up in our thoughts. It just shows up. Okay. I, uh, someone said maybe he was talking about the theology. Maybe you're right. Let's back that up. Maybe I'm not being fair. Let's back that up because maybe I'm not being fair. All right. Here we go. Remember, God has built his church and he's given gifts to the church and some of them are alive. Some of them are dead, right? Some of the ones that are alive, we wish they were dead, but that's, that's another story. Remember the language of Ephesians chapter? Maybe he's talking about the gifts. So you wish some gifts were dead? Why would, if God gave the gift, why would you want the gift? No matter how you look at it, the, he gave, he's talking about the confessions. Well, that would be the gifts, though. He's got to be talking about the people who wrote the confessions. I mean, why would you, if God gave the church a gift, why would you want the gift dead? Now, I guess maybe he meant the theology, 
Okay. Uh, but if he's talking about the gifts, it's just as confusing because if God gave the church gifts, why would he want the gifts to die? I don't know. It's just an odd joke. It's an odd joke, however you try to interpret it. Um, oh, now, if he's talking about the pretend gifts, then okay. But he just said God gave gifts. So I, so I don't know. And he says some are dead and some are alive. So he wants the gifts that are alive to be dead. And I guess he wants the ones that are dead to be alive. Like that's, I, I don't know how, that just goes into all kinds of weird directions. Chapter 4, it's the language of Rome and triumphs and senators and you're the greatest general ever and the general goes out and he, he slays another nation and he brings back all the prisoners and he comes to the edges of Rome and the senators come out. Is this a big enough victory or not? And he's got all the, he's got elephants and he's got paintings and he's got these, these prisoners and the king and if it's a big enough thing for a triumph and a triumphal procession, he's going to go through the streets of Rome and he's going to go to the place where they're going to sacrifice these men these soldiers and this king to their false gods because he's leading these captives to this great captivity and he's going to go ahead and just destroy them all. And Ephesians 4 and Psalm 68 picks up that language and Jesus has taken his enemies and he said... Okay, we're going to back that up because I'm not... I uh, feel like we something just got skipped there. All right, here we go. And he's got all the... He's got elephants and he got painting. Okay, don't know what happened here. Let me... I feel like something got skipped. All right, here we go. Remember, God has built his church, and he's given gifts to the church. And some of them are alive. Some of them are dead, right? Some of the ones that are alive, we wish they were dead, but that's, that's another story. Remember the language of Ephesians chapter 4? It's the language of Rome and triumphs and senators, and you're the greatest general ever. And the general goes out, and he, he slays another nation, and he brings back all the prisoners, and he comes to the edges of Rome, and the senators come out. Is this a big enough victory or not? And he's got all the, he's got elephants, and he's got paintings, and he's got these, these prisoners and the king. And if it's a big enough thing for a triumph and a triumphal procession, he's going to go through the streets of Rome, and he's going to go to the place where they're going to sacrifice these men, these soldiers, and this king to their false gods because he's leading these captives to this great captivity, and he's going to go ahead and just destroy them all. And Ephesians 4 and Psalm 68 picks up that language, and Jesus has taken his enemies, and he subdued them, and he's conquered them. And now instead of parading them over to their, to their doom, he parades them through church history, as it were, and saves them and redeems them and regenerates them and gives them to the church. They're called pastors. They're called teachers. That's the language. And so we have people that have gone before us that have studied. All right, now he's talking about the gifts. If he's quoting Ephesians 4, that he gave gifts, and the gifts he gave was pastors and teachers. He's talking about people. The gifts he's referring to, there are people. Some are dead and some are alive. He's literally quoting Ephesians 4 where it says, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying the body of Christ. The gifts he's pointing there is clearly, if he's going to quote Ephesians 4 after talking about the gifts, he's referring to actual people. And so we come to the Bible and we think, what has church history taught us? What we're really saying is, what has God's special gifting through the power of the Holy Spirit taught us? And so we have a great confession here. And confession means what? To confess means 
I agree. And you want to look at one of the great confessions? You read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Great is a mystery of godliness, right? We confess this as a church. So what does it say about sanctification? Point one. They who are, who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther... Now look at some of the, the language here if you know verbs and active and passive and who's doing the work. Sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The whole of the, excuse me, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified and they more and more are quickened and strengthened in saving graces to the practice of all true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Guess what? That is teaching monergistic sanctification. God. Okay, let's go with the eye. Let's take it to its logical conclusion. God's the one who does it. Then, then why can anyone be blamed for the lack of sanctification in said life? And you know what this leads to? You know where exactly this leads to. This, you know where this is going to go. Monergistic, here's how it works. Moner, monergistic sanctification. Someone uh, had some notes and they kind of drew like a little kind of a chart out, right? Um, and I, I, I wish I'd pull it up. I think it's on our Discord channel. But, um, and, and it kind of, and I'm paraphrasing here. So the person who, who drew it out, you can correct me when I get it wrong here. But basically it goes like this. If you believe in monergistic sanctification, God does it. Now, if it doesn't show up, if there's not enough of it, if it's not happening, well, clearly you're not saved because God is not working sanctification in your life. So once again, what do you look for the assurance of your salvation? Not the finished work of Jesus Christ, but the supposed monergistic sanctification that God is working in your life. Now, And if God is working sanctification in your life, you think it's going to be pretty amazing and awesome. I mean, I don't even know why it wouldn't be sinless perfection. I mean, if God is the one doing it, you think God could get me to sinless perfection. You would think so. But, but so immediately, this is what it turns into. How do you know you're saved? Sanctification. Sanctification becomes the proof of your justification, even though justification is based off an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. So why are you looking to sanctification instead of looking to the finished work of Jesus Christ? So then what you have to do? Well, God is sanctifying me. So look, I, I keep struggling with this sin and this sin and this sin and this sin. Clearly, I'm not saved because God's not sanctifying me. Clearly, I'm not saved. Now, if you go synergistic and you go with the same idea, then the point is, well, if I'm truly saved, I should want to be sanctified. So I should be doing more. I should be trying harder. And clearly, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want it enough and I'm not doing enough. Clearly, I'm not saved. Both of these ways of thinking leads the person to know, so now judge their justification on the basis of sanctification, whether it's monergistic or synergistic. And guess what conclusion? Anyone who's even remotely honest with themselves should come to, woe is me, I'm not saved. It is the sanctifier. By the way, that's something I said earlier, but I often think that. Lord, thank you that you're sanctifying me. Did you know Ger Gerhardus Voss used to say this? This is interesting. Maybe I don't believe it. Maybe I do. God's even sanctifying you when you sleep. Or maybe could he be? Interesting. Well, if God is sanctifying me when I sleep, maybe that's my problem. I don't sleep enough. Maybe that's it. I just need to sleep more. Okay? So, so now, church... God sanctifies you when you sleep. So now we should call for no go. Not, let's not go to church on Sunday. Let's just sleep. 
because God will sanctify us. Let's just sleep. Let's just come to church and sleep. I'm just going to, everyone come to church. There's going to be beds and everyone just comes to church and just lays down and sleep for three hours and then go back and go, whoo, I feel more sanctified. I feel more sanctified. If God is even sanctifying when you sleep, I mean, come on. How many years does it take to get you to sinless perfection? I mean, come on. I'm glad God is sanctifying me because I'm kind of like that kid uh, growing up. And you probably all do this in every culture. At least uh, in my house, we had a little thing called a growing bean. You'd stand next to this little thing and, you know, am I growing? Right? And my dad was 6'4", my mom was 5'10", so I was going to be a 6'7", point guard in the NBA. George the Iceman Gervin, I was going to dunk on this guy. And, well, now I'm six foot because I'm shrinking, but I used to be six foot one and three quarters. What happened? I only could dunk a few times, but I never let a congregation forget it. (laughs) Am I growing? I want you to know, dear Christian, God is sanctifying you. Say, well, what's the big deal? I just want you to know that God is sanctifying you. You might not be able to see it. You might not be able to tell, but you're not going to be the same person in five years, in ten years. You may not be able to see it. <laughs> you may not be able to tell. <laughs> but he, but he's sanctifying. You may not be able to see it. You may not be able to tell, but he's sanctifying you. So if what if I never see it and what if I can never tell? Is, is that good? Am I, am I good to go? A, am I good? Now, as long as you don't bring sanctification as a test, for justification, that, that I'm willing to work with your views on sanctification. If you make sanctification a test for your justification, that's where I end up having, if you can just, like you, there can be, I think there's lots of room for disagreement in sanctification because nobody clearly has a clue how this works. Nobody. There's no agreement on it. But if I if I look to you and go, well, God's sanctifying you, and so therefore there should be this and this and this and this and this and this in your life, and I don't see it, therefore you're not justified, well, that's the problem. When justification, when sanctification becomes the test for justification, then I have a problem because now I'm not looking to the finished work of Christ. I'm looking to what is showing up in my life. And whatever shows up in my life, how could that be proof of justification? Because you know what's required for justification? Perfect, exact, and hot, entire, perpetual obedience externally and internally. Perfection is required, and the only way to get that is through Christ and his imputed righteousness, not by my imperfect sanctification, who I may not even be able to see it or tell, but hey, it's there. It's happening. It's happening. Years and 15, even look back at your life, and you think, I see God's hand in my life. I see I still fall short, but the rebound time in terms of repentance, other thing, he is working on me. See, I still fall short. Now, remember, earlier he told us we've been given supernatural power to say no to sin. Why 5, 10, 15 years later you're still falling short? Why? <laughs> if you can say no, why are you still falling short? And, and and you know what? Another thing I think sometimes is funny is when Christians will say, well, I'm not, I'm not the way I used to be. Do you realize how much you just, just forget God, forget the Holy Spirit. Do you realize how much you just change just in aging? And that the sins you struggled with when you were 18 or 20 or 25 are going to be, you probably won't even have an issue with many of those sins when you're 30, 40, 45. Now, different sins show up, different issues, 
So sometimes we look back, well, I don't struggle with that anymore. Of course you don't. <laughs> it's like going to a rest home and like, man, uh, hey. <laughs> and, and, and these older people are like, look, I look, I, I've been sanctified. I don't, I don't go to wild parties anymore. I'm not hanging out in the club. I'm not doing weed yeah, because you're 85 and living in a rest home. Obviously, does that have anything to do with sanctification or it just does the fact that you're changed? Yeah, exactly. Not only that, but a lot of religions change people's behavior. AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, changes people's behavior. Narcotics Anonymous changes people. There's all kinds of programs that supposedly changes people's behavior. So I, I, I don't, just because you can see a change in your behavior, what, there's a million things that can contribute to that. Point two of the sanctification section of chapter 13, London Baptist Confession, it's through the whole man. Number three, there's a war and corruption. Notice that language, the sanctifying spirit of Christ, he's the sanctifier. God is the active one. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we always ought to give thanks to God, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, and again, when you see that sanctification, you have to ask, which one is that? Is that your positional one? He saves you through sanctification. He, he sets you apart to himself. He, he sets you apart to himself gives you the, or, or, declare, or credits to you the imputed righteousness of Christ, his grace and mercy upon you. Like, like we got, we, sometimes when I, just because you read the word sanctification, you've got to identify. In fact, I would challenge you to do this. Go through Genesis to Revelation, look up every time the word sanctification or sanctify is there. Is it a positional? Is it an exper- experiential? Or is it a permanent? Most Christians who want to argue about sanctification, guess what? They've never done that. But they'll still tell you what they think is the right way, which is maddening, which is maddening. Now, listen, everyone who sits down and does that, you're not going to necessarily, this is very important, there may not be agreement on all of them, but that should make you, whoa. I mean, just think, there's not even agreement on if sanctification is monergistic or synergistic within the Christian, within Christianity. But yet Christians will argue and be so dogmatic and so certain. I mean, we've got, we got to, this sermon is so just whacked out in my mind because he's told everyone you have the power to say no to sin. You have the power to say yes, basically to the righteousness of God. But then he still makes idea that you're still going to sin. You're still going to sin. You're still going to sin. What? What? It is an error to think that justification is God's work and sanctification is our work. Justification is God's grace in us, or excuse me, for us. Sanctification is God's grace freely working in us. Did not Jesus, our Lord and Savior, pray? True. It, it is a little ironic that he pointed out three types of sanctification and he's just going straight to the one kind. But he did say in the last part... Um, that he was only going to focus on the experiential or uh, the progressive. I can't remember the name he gave them. I'm going more with the classic names uh, given to them in systematic theology. But um, 
So I understand why he's going with this one, but the problem is he keeps reading scripture and not taking the time to distinguish which one. He's just assuming it's experiential. Again, I'll go back to the Leviticus passage. If God is the one who sanctified Israel, look at that. And what if you measure that in any way, it's a failure. Now, will he ultimately, in a sense, sink? Now, he set Israel apart for himself, absolutely, almost in a positional way, even in a national way. And he's not done with them, and we'll believe he will ultimately sanctify them. But during the experiential progressive part, it's been a total failure in a million different ways. In the high priestly prayer, sanctify them in truth. Yes, thy word is truth. Hebrews 2, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Those who are sanctified, that seems like a completed, done act. That is my positional sanctification. God is the one who does that. Charles Hodge, sanctification is supernatural. God enables you, dear Christian, to say no to sin, to die to sin, and yes to righteousness. There you go. God has enabled you to die to sin. God has given you the ability. He he keeps repeating that fact. Well, if I can... (sighs) Okay, man. I, I... what? I don't understand Christians. I, 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 I literally sometimes feel like I'm some outsider looking at people like, what is happening over there? Like they don't, just, just, just sit down and, and, and just try to talk it through in your own head. All right, guys, right? Like if you, if you tried to talk to your kids, I wonder if your kids would even catch how utterly ridiculous this. All right, kids, here's what I want you to understand. All right, you ready? God has given you the supernatural ability to always obey me. Always obey me. Always do the right thing. Never complain. Never fight with your sister. Never be selfish. You has given you the right to always say no to wrong and yes to right. Always, always. You've been given the supernatural ability to do so. However, you're never going to do it perfectly and you're always going to do wrong. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I, 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 I just don't understand. Like, it, the minute you say everyone has the supernatural ability, then you got to explain why no one in history has ever accomplished it. Anyone, every, I mean, it's just nonsense. Because again, it would require the eradication of the old man would have to be completely gone. Because to say yes to God and no to sin, that's not just the external action. I want to make sure everyone understands that. To say no to sin would be saying no to sin in external action and in eternal, internal desire, thoughts, and motivations. To say no to sin means you're avoiding sin internally and externally. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3, please. Sometimes it's a mistake to say the doctrine of sanctification can only be used by looking at verses that say sanctification. Uh, I just want you to see what sanctification is without even using the word. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. What is the doctrine of monergistic sanctification? Here's a great illustration of that very truth. 
Paul says in chapter 3, verse 16 of Ephesians, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. This is Hebrews chapter 13, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Now, I'm good at polluting myself. I'm good at staining myself. I'm good at doing things like that, but I'm not good at sanctifying myself. John Cahoon, by the way, if you ever see the word, uh, I won't write it down, C-O-L-Q-U-H-O-U-N. It looks like Cole Cahoon. How do you pronounce it, Robert? Cahoon. I knew it. I, got, I, I, I was going to bet my friend something about that, but he didn't believe me, and I didn't have my Scottish friend there. Like K-A-H-O-O-N, yes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he said, to sanctify a sinner is a work of God, and it is a greater work than to create the world. It is the work of the whole trinity of divine persons. See, someone e- emailed me that question. Well, wait, so, and you know, who indwells me? Is it the Holy, whole Trinity? And I'm like, well, ultimately it doesn't matter. One, one, one person of the Trinity is God. So omnipotent God is inside of you. Well, right there, he's just quoting someone who's saying the whole Trinity, the entire power of the Trinity is involved in sanctifying you. It's a greater work than creation. Well, for crying out loud, then, I mean, we should be basically perfect. We should be basically like, I mean, we shouldn't be, we should be absolutely sinless, not sinning less, but sinless. You, we, we, it's like we talk this exalted language about the power working in us. And then we well, after we say that and everybody says, amen, then we're like, okay, but uh, just so that you know, uh, it, it doesn't really work that way. I mean, you're still going to sin and you're still going to fall and you're going to have lustful thoughts and you're going to be greedy and you're going to, you're not going to, even in your home, your kids are going to see your failures as parents and they're going to see how sinful you are. I mean, well, all you got to do is go to any church. Get the kids away from the parents and let the kids start talking. And then you'll find out mom and dad is nowhere as godly as they look like sitting in that pew. All right? Yeah. And it's the way it works. Say, okay, God sanctifies me. God, what you start, you finish. God, you keep your promise. You're sanctifying me. Uh, But is there a response? What's the response to God's sanctifying work? The, number- the question would be, why do we sin so much? Why is 2,000 years of church history filled with church splits and fighting and arguing and doing crazy things like burning people at the stake and killing and murder and all the crazy things, supporting slavery and, and all the other horrible things that Christians have supported and done and denying people civil rights and all the horrible things we've done in the name of Christ? One response to God's sanctifying work is faith. Everybody wants to say the number one response is obedience, and I'm not afraid to say that is a good evidence of sanctification. God- there you go. We just heard it. Boom. It's where it always ends back. 
the evidence, one of the good evidences of sanctification is obedience. So guess what? If God is the one sanctifying you and there's not enough obedience, then clearly God is not sanctifying you. And what's the logical conclusion? You're not saved. If you believe it's a synergistic, what's the proof of sanctification? It is dun, 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 obedience. And if you don't have enough obedience, it proves you're not being sanctified or you're not wanting to be sanctified or you're not cooperating with it, which proves you were never saved. So what you have to do is then pretend that you're more sanctified and more holy and more godly than you really are by dressing yourself up and playing pretend and playing house and pretending that you're all godly when you're actually not. See, the, mo- the moment you bec- make it the evident, the moment you make sanctification the proof of one's justification, you destroy justification by grace alone through faith alone because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. You make it about works, and then you can't even tell me how many works you need in order to truly prove that you're sanctified. You say, well, as long as there's some. Well, if there's some, why, why would there only be some if God is the one doing the sanctifying? Does God not want me to be holy? Does God not want me to be without sin? Why would he oh, sanctify me in such little bitty parts if he, you, there's so many questions renews god helps us but the number one response is faith hmm that's kind of interesting i've been crucified with christ it's no longer i who live but christ who lives in me that's interesting i wonder if i'm justified by faith am i sanctified by faith don't know and the life i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me living by faith how can that be a response Hmm. maybe if god's doing all the work i just lay back and let god maybe god's the active one i can even be more passive than i think Should I even pursue holiness? What about faith? Well, why don't we turn to Romans chapter 6 and see if that's true. Obviously, check me. I think it's your other pastor, Pastor Steve, that talks about the Bereans. And Bereans like to see if people are cutting the word straightly. But Steve, didn't you say something like it wasn't just one person being a Berean? It was the Bereans as a church looking to see if these things were true? I like that. See, that makes good Twitter. Do you know? How did Steve and I meet, by the way? I mean, Twitter's an awful place, I know. But we met through Rich Barcelos, I think. Because I think you were tweeting some stuff, and I had to correct you, and then you said, I repent. (laughs) No, that part's not true. But it was through Rich, because he said we'd be of kindred spirit. Yeah, okay. He said, you might not like Robert, but Steve would be okay. <laughs> Cahoon. <laughs> Why do I say I'm just having a hard time. I'm glad they're having fun. It's wonderful to have fun during a sermon. But I'm sitting here going, the mo- the, the, like these glaring questions that you would think any thinking person, any like like someone would be raising their hand going, but I'm so confused. <laughs> I'm so confused. 
You're telling me I have supernatural power, but then you're telling me I'm going to still sin. You're telling me that the evidence of my sanctification will be obedience, but you're telling me that I'm saved by gospel, which is the imputed righteousness of Christ. Can you make this make sense? But no. All right. So now he's going to go to Romans 6. Okay. Now, now he's really pushed the monergistic aspect of sanctification. Clearly in the positional kind, even in the experiential kind. But, but guess what's getting ready to happen here? <laughs> it's going to be funny because I, I've watched, I've, I've, I, I've watched and listened to a lot of teaching on the monergistic sanctification, the experiential kind. And it almost always works this way. Okay. Okay. Your God does the sanctifying. You play no part in it. Right. And then somewhere in the sermon, it almost always turns to, however, you can't just lay back and do nothing. I mean, you have to do something. I mean, you've got, whoa, 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 whoa. That's going straight back to synergism. Either God does it all or God doesn't do it completely. I mean, like you can't have it like it's monergistic, but you've got responsibilities, but you've got something you've got to do. I I don't know how you can still maintain that it's monergistic. That would be like saying justification is monergistic, but here's some things you have to do. You got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this. Let's see how I'm afraid that's where he's getting ready to go, which is going to even add more confusion to all of this. But maybe he's going to explain it so that all the questions disappear. It's by faith because one of the things I want you to do is I want you to think I need to be reckoning on an ongoing basis because God has sanctified me that I'm dead to sin. I have to take it by faith. Are you dead to sin positionally? Are you dead to sin practically? Experientially? Now, isn't the Christian life basically the impossible task of trying to live out in practice what is true positionally, and you're never going to do it anywhere close to the reality that is true positionally? That I'm dead to sin and alive to God. Sanctifying faith means reckoning, counting that we're dead to sin and alive to God because of union with Christ. Romans 6 1 to 10. There's all kinds of information here about union, and I'm not even going to read it, but it leads up to what I had you look at earlier. Verse 11. All this talk about union with Christ, died with Christ, alive with Christ, raised with Christ, never to die again. 6.11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, I am dead to sin and alive to God. Absolute truth. In Christ. In my position. In practice, am I dead to sin? Well, if I was dead to sin, how am I sinning? Okay, right? I, I, I'm assuming everyone in the graveyard, just if you've got a graveyard anywhere near your house, go, go see, and you can bring everything out to them. You can bring money. You can bring everything. Are they going to get up and engage in any of the action? They're dead to it. They cannot respond to it. They're not moved by it. They're not tempted by it. They're dead to it. Well, if you're going to say that I'm dead to sin practically, experientially, or all I have to do is just consider myself dead and then boom, 
Nope, temptation no longer has a pull. This doesn't, no problem here, no problem here, no problem here. You 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 get done listening to this sermon, you walk into the kitchen, you make your your supper, you make your your husband supper. He looks at it like, what is this garbage? Throws it across the room and says, that is garbage. I don't want that. Make me something else. And you're like, yes, husband, I love you. I'm going to turn the other cheek and I'm not going to get mad and I'm not going to get frustrated because I'm dead to sin. Yeah, I'll be seeing on the news that one of my listeners killed their husband. Okay, not really, not actually, but I'm seeing the point is they're going to respond in an angrily way. They're going to get mad. They're going to get upset because we're human beings and we're sinners. So when you say you're dead to sin, what do you mean by that? That's exactly what I mean by reckoning by faith. John Murray said that a decisive breach with sin in its power, control, and defilement has been wrought. And you, Christian, need to believe that. John Owen said, while by faith we contemplate the glory of Christ as revealed in the gospel, all grace will thrive and flourish in us toward a perfect conformity unto him. Faith recognizes who we are, where our holiness and righteousness and good works come from. Maybe I could put it this way if you're still not convinced. Did you know Jesus is praying for you? How do you know that? Okay, and and this is where it even gets more convoluted. Okay, so I'm a Christian, right? So now supposedly I've been given supernatural power to say no to sin. Boom. I've been given the supernatural ability to uh, say yes to God. Oh, and I'm dead to sin. I'm live to God. This is supposedly all true somewhat experientially, right? Oh, 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 by the way, the spirit of God is inside of me giving me power, right? All right. Oh, and by the way, the Son of God is praying for me. I mean, I don't know how many things you need to be sinless, but if that's not enough to get you to sinlessness, <laughs> we've, I, I mean, you've got to rethink your thoughts and position here. Do you see him? I've had lots of grandmas in my life come up to me and say, and they probably knew I need a lot of prayer because I do. We pray for you every day. Like, what a gift. That's better than temple coffee. Why do you need to pray for someone? I mean, they're dead to sin. They're alive to God. They have supernatural ability to say no to sin. They have the supernatural ability to say yes to God. They got the power of God inside of them. Oh, and by the way, Jesus is praying for them. Why waste your time praying for him? He's got everything he needs for crying out loud. I mean, I don't, he should be just three seconds away from walking on water. <laughs> and then they die. I'm like, who's praying for me? And I think it was Robert Murray McShane maybe who said, do you know what, if I could hear Jesus in the other room praying for me, I wouldn't be afraid of anything. I'd be so encouraged. Can you imagine? You hear Jesus, dear Father, here's what Mike is doing. Here's how he needs help. Here's how he needs encouragement. And guess what? He, I can't see him in the other room praying for me, but I know by faith he is praying for me. The Lord Jesus. And last time I checked, I think he probably gets his prayers answered. Yes? And I take that by faith. He's able to say to the uttermost those. So if Jesus gets his prayers answered, and he's praying for me, and if he's praying for my sanctification, it should be done. Right? 
to draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And if he gives me the largest gift, that is a true mediatorial advocacy, then he's going to give me everything else. The just shall live by what? Faith, not just to get in. Habakkuk 2, Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, it's not just to get in, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall start to live by faith at the start of their Christian walk. No, the just shall live by faith. We walk by faith. That's the response of God's sanctification. Believing God is sanctifying me. And then, what's the next thing we do? The next thing we do is we're looking to Jesus by faith. We say no to sin. We obey. Faith has consequences. We say no to sin. All right. So, so that's, that's what happens. If you're, if you're being sanctified, you say no to sin. You say no to sin. All right. That, that means no to sin internally, externally. That would be sinless perfection. Oh, oh no, I know what we're going to hear. We say no to sin. However, we don't do it perfectly. But we, but we say no to sin. We have the power to say no to sin, but we... Oh, man. The consequences of sanctification are work and sweat and toil and vigorous yielding obedience. You say no to sin and yielding obedience. These are the results of sanctification. You're going to say no to sin, and you're going to yield in obedience. I know. I'm, I'm waiting. There's going to be the butt's going to come in here at some point. The the butt's going to be but 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 it's not going to be perfect, and but uh, there's going to be 900 excuses. However, supposedly God is the one doing it all, so I don't know why He can't get it to some level of perfection. I I don't understand. Second Peter chapter one. We're out of time, so I'll just read it to you. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. With virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Faith results in sanctification and also leads to the results of sanctification, virtue. True faith in Christians seek these virtues. Faith has consequences. I'll read Westminster Shorter again. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we, we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So, so Westminster, we're enabled more and more to die to sin. But I thought we're supposed to, we're dead to sin, but we're supposed to die. We're dead positionally, but we're dying practically. And we're giving the ability to do so more and more and more. But if I can't, if I can't do it, then is that because I've not been given the ability to do it? Or because supposedly the ability comes from God. So if I can't say no to a certain sin, then it's not my fault. It has to be God not giving me the ability. But the minute I say that I don't have the ability, then you're going to say, well, clearly you're not saved because God is sanctified. It's just, it's just a maddening circle. It's just a running, you're in a hamster wheel, just running in circles, going absolutely nowhere, convinced that we're saying something so, so profound, but really we're saying words that have truly no substance and meaning in any practical way. John Owen said, let faith look on Christ in the gospel as he is set forth dying and crucified for us. I mean, if anybody could love me like that, wouldn't I want to obey? I'm trying to think of a, an illustration for this. 
Grandpa, Abendroth, always kind of walked funny. And he couldn't walk too far. We'd all go to the fairs and stuff. He couldn't really walk. And his foot had gotten cut off all the way, and they kind of sewed it back on in 1950. Medicine wasn't too good then. And he had his foot always sideways like that and couldn't walk very far. Grandpa, why can't you do that? And he never wanted to talk about it. Well, they got in a car accident by this bridge, and there was this big truck coming. And they are in an accident truck is coming, doesn't seem like it's going to stop. Grandpa gets out of the car, runs across to the other side, breaks the window, pulls Grandma out, pulls her to the side. They avert the big truck. He looks down. He has no foot. I wonder what Grandpa could have asked Grandma to do. And she would have said no. Nah. Honey, could you make me some coffee? No. (laughs) No. When somebody does something like that for you, how do you respond? You're just like, I can't believe somebody would do that for me. And so one of the things we have to do when it comes to understanding the Lord Jesus in, sancti- in response to sanctification, if God would so love me, what would I say no to? I'd like to obey. I'd like to learn Christ the, the right way. I want to honor God. The only problem with this illustration is that the thing is just because we're overwhelmed with emotion and gratitude for what Christ did for me, and I do believe that should be the motivation for sanctification. I do agree with that. Just remember, though, we have something inside of us called the sinful nature who says, think about yourself. Who cares what he did for you? Worry about yourself. What do you want? What do you desire? And that doesn't go away until glorification. I want to be like the Lord Jesus. And God says, be sober, be watchful, follow after righteousness, 1 Timothy, lay aside every weight. God demands these things from us, but we can't work out this holiness in ourselves. And of course, you know the verse, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is my presence, but also in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's just an, a great question. I mean, I know he wasn't phrasing it out of question, but he's reading these scriptures telling you what to do, telling you, get rid of this weight, do this, do this, put off, put on. There's all these scriptures telling you what to do, what to do, what to do, what to do, what to do. Well, if sanctification is completely the work of God and we're, we don't have a part in it, then why are we getting commands and telling us what to do? Now, other than you say, these scriptures tell us what we're t- to do, to make us realize that we can't do it, so therefore we have to rely on Christ by faith for justification and for sanctification. I, I, I mean, I don't know what, what else do you, either, either these scriptures are telling you to do something that you're going to say, well, Christ is the one who's going to do that through you. Well, if Christ is going to do that through you and he gives you the commands then you should be able to do all of those things perfectly, therefore there should be no more sin. But we continue, look at all those scriptures telling you, put off the weight, don't do this, don't do this, don't look at a woman with lust, don't do that. All these scriptures telling you what not to do, what not to do, what not to do, what not to do. Well, why are those there if sanctification is purely monergistic? Doesn't that seem to tell us to do something? And can we do that or can't we do it? Well, you say that we can do those things because Christ has given you the ability to do it. So then we should have perfect sanctification since God is the one doing it. But since we don't have perfect sanctification, how do we understand it? Do we see it in a sense like a law? 
that once again reminds us that even as saved people, we're going to fall short and we still need, we need to be justified by faith and sanctified by faith. For it is who that works in you, God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Are there commands in the Bible? Of course. But they're responses to sanctification and evidences of sanctification. Here's what Burkhoff said. Sanctification naturally leads to a life of good works. They may be called the fruits of sanctification. Okay. Last part before our Q&A. Maybe you're an engineer and you're thinking, how does this work? God is sanctifying. I respond with faith and good works. How do the two go together? How do they go together? Well, when you don't know, you ask Jerry Bridges. And here's what Jerry Bridges said. I'm an engineer by training and temperament. One characteristic of engineers, we want to know how things work. I kept trying to answer the question of exactly how my personal responsibility for growing in holiness fits together with the work of the Holy Spirit. Then he writes four words that I want you to memorize. I finally gave up. I concluded that God has not answered the question anywhere in the Bible. The mutual relationship of the Holy Spirit and the human personality in the work of sanctification is a mystery known only to God. <laughs> the Bible doesn't explain how it works. It does not explain how it works. So what we have to do is this, that we don't really understand how this works. This is what we have to avoid. We have to avoid making sanctification the proof of a justification that comes by an imputed righteousness. Sanctification can't be that. We can't, that's the, that's the thing. You just got to eliminate that from your formula, right? You can't, if you look at that that way, then that's when everything begins to fall apart. You will destroy the gospel of grace. You will destroy a gospel of being saved by an imputed righteousness. Imputed does not produce the righteousness. So I do believe that I'm saved and that God is working in me and through me. I think believe the Holy Spirit is there, but I don't understand how it all works. I still sin. We know that to be a fact. There's all these commands telling me what to do that I'm going to fall short of. My only hope is to once again flee to the uh, imputed righteousness because my practical righteousness is never going to be the same. We don't know how it works. We don't have a clue, but I'm not going to go around and tell people that, hey, you now have the ability to say no to sin and say yes to God, because clearly we, we don't, because we can't be perfect. And if I can't be perfect, then clearly I can't say no to all sin. So we, when we try to clean it up and explain it, that's when it falls apart. I agree with Jerry Bridges. We don't understand how this works. It's a mystery. But our inability to explain just how God's works in our personalities and through them should not keep us from believing that he does. What does this have to do with law and gospel? If you teach your children the Bible, by the way, we used to have family Bible time. And here's a little family Bible time side note here for you as dads. Here's how you teach a family Bible time. You get all the kids around the table, mom's there, and you go, it's time for family Bible time. <laughs> You're going to love it. Jesus is a kind God. No, you know what I do? Everybody gets the Bible. Mom's main job was keep everybody from throwing food. 
And I get the Bible out. I say, it's time for Bible time. Daddy loves the Bible. Oh, I love the Bible. I'm not sure changing your tone of voice (laughs) really changes the heart of a child not necessarily wanting to do Bible time. Now, I understand it's better to be more positive about it, but I don't think it just magically go, oh, dad loves the Bible. And he's saying it in a really nice way. <laughs> I, I don't know, but okay. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm just too much convinced of the reality of sin in all of us. It's going to be exciting. Remember I was, uh, I remember once I was in Maine and it was at a hotel and I went to the jacuzzi and there was this 14-year-old kid sitting in there and I got in the jacuzzi, he looked at me like it was his jacuzzi. It was a hotel. And he goes, my dad's a police officer in this town. I go, you've got to be kidding me. This town? Yeah, this town. I go, that's funny. I'm the mayor of this town. <laughs> and I go, I said, no, I'm not, I'm not telling you. Truth. I'm a Bible teaching pastor. He goes, the Bible's boring. I go, yeah, I know. Hey, king, I know you're a bad king, but come in here. I'll take care of you. And here's some milk and here's some little sheepskins and just lay your head down. And she picks up the hammer and she puts the stake right here and through the temple. And one, two, three. He goes, I guess I never read that part. I go, yeah. I bet you never read about Sisera. So I get the Bible. What's the point? (laughs) I'm hanging in there. I want to say I have jet lag, but I drove up. So what's the difference? I have I-5 lag. Can you feel me? And you get the Bible out, and you think, you know what? These kids have been bugging me, and they're too loud, and they don't obey. And so tonight, it's the law book. I'm going to use the Bible to teach as much law as possible to get these kids in line. I say to my wife, your kids are not doing the right thing, and off we go. First, be excited about it. If your kids claim to be Christians, I would just come to the table and say, hey, kids, we got an issue here. This week you've been bad, and I want you to know you have the power to say no to sin and they're yes to God, so I need you to start doing the right thing because you can do it perfectly. I would just, I mean, like, but okay, all right. I'm just, he's forgetting that whole part of the sermon where he's now repeated that multiple times that we have this supernatural ability and we have Christ praying for us and we have the Holy Spirit working in us and supposedly, but yet we're going to continue to sin. He never, but I do agree that we don't know how it all works and it's confusing as long as you don't make it proof. But he kept saying that there's proof to sanctification or evidence. And that's, that's where it gets nerd. That's where, because the minute you make it evidence, it's going to become now the, the, the proof of your justification. And now you're not looking to the finished work of Christ. You're looking to supposedly what's showing up in your life. But secondly, why don't you just start in the gospel of Mark and just teach them about who Jesus is and say, is there anybody like Jesus? Can you imagine? Have you met anybody? Do you know anybody like him? I mean, maybe there's some you know, similarities in a child of God. But look at who Jesus is. He doesn't just clean lepers by the word. He touches them. And why? And what does he do? And all these other things. And off you go. I'm telling you, here's the sum of it all tonight for the second session. Sanctification is impossible with law only. You coaches and you military sergeants that call themselves drill sergeants. And I'm not after you because I'm one. I'm the guilty one. I, I could go back and cry some of the ways I train my children and preach to the congregation I'm at that they didn't live up to my standards. What do we do? Of course we give them the law because we love them, my son. But we tell them who Jesus is. There is no sanctification apart from the work of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. None. 
You want people to be holy in your lives? You talk to them about Jesus. You know, the kids that come up to me after church, you know, and, you know, I say, what's the sermon about? And they're like, uh, Jesus? Yes, that's right. I tell people all the time, you want to hear a sermon about Jesus? You're in the right church. If you want to hear about some kind of weird TED talk, I don't give them well, and we're not doing them here. The world can do all that, but what the world can't do is say, there's a God who eternally loved me. You know, how, you know what Hosea says? I've loved you freely. He loved me because he loved me. When my wife first said to me, I love you, I couldn't hardly stand it. I said, you want to just say that one more time in case I'm, I didn't understand you? I love you. And then I thought, I've got to get married in 30 days because if she finds out the real me, she's never going to say yes. So I asked her to marry me on May 6th. We got married on June 6th. I'm not advising it, but it's just life. And God knew every sin you'd ever commit, even as a Christian, And he still said, I loved you so much that I'm going to send my son to die for you, to live for you and raise for you. And in light of who I am, I'm thinking about that even today, in light of what God has done for me, I should be in hell in the lake of fire. And he's loved me. And then he's given me all the other things. If he's not spared his son, when he freely give me all other things? I have the spirit. I have the Bible. I have a church. I have a family. I have a wife. I have four children. I have grandson. And this could go on and on and on. I have taste buds. What am I going to say? No, I want to say, I want to honor you. And when I don't honor him, I want to say, please forgive me. You don't say, well, I, I, don't, I, I, I sin, I must not be a Christian. No, no, Christians sin, and then they're sad about it, and then they repent. <laughs> you have all this talk about all this stuff that sanctification should make you obedient and do this, and you have the power to say no to this, and then turn around, but Christians sin. And no, he can't even realize, nobody sees the dis- dissonance. No one sees the disconnect. No one's like, whoa, wait, 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 wait. You basically said that I don't ever have to sin because I can say no to it and say yes to God. And I got the, the, the power of the Spirit working in me. Jesus praying for me. I got, and I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to God. But you're going to sin. And they say there's a fight and there's a struggle and there's a Romans 7 in me. And I don't want to do those things anymore. And I do, but I have a Savior who paid for every one of those sins. I don't want to do those things, but I do. Why do you do them if you don't have to? Because you can say no because of a supernatural power. You've got to explain the disconnect. And if you ask me to love my wife, I want to love my wife. If you ask me to evangelize, I want to evangelize. But do you love your wife as Christ loved the church? Oh, yeah, you don't. You ask me to give freely to the church, I give freely to the church. You want me to use my, my spiritual gifts, I want to do them. Why? We can all pull our bootstraps up and do things by duty for a while, but lasting motivation to obey has to be the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus is the gospel. When I say gospel, I want you to think the Lord Jesus, who was sent by the Father, and the Spirit of God helped him to obey, uh, helped, uh, helped him on, the, on earth, and then applies those benefits to us. So when I want to make a point, I get really soft and talk softly. So Steve, why don't you come up and we'll do a Q&A or take a break. And that's the conclusion. By the way, tomorrow we're going to talk about insurance. We're going to talk about lordship, lordship salvation. Okay, well, we'll, we'll definitely review the part on lordship salvation. Because I, I want to hear where that's going to go. All right.
there you have it. We're an hour and 14 minutes and I've got food that's supposed to be showing up at the door any second. So I'm going to go have, well, let's see, is it dinner or, or supper? I think we call it supper here in Texas. I'm going to go have some supper. That's what I'm going to go do. And uh, well, I'll just leave that all on your plate and you can, well, feed on that this evening and uh, let me know your thoughts. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll continue working on this long, lengthy series on the proper distinction between law and gospel, dealing with lots of these controversial issues. And hopefully, you'll be willing to embrace these questions and struggle with this. Thanks for listening. God bless.